0: Are going to attempt to cover verses 1 through 16 today, and I'm gonna to have to do it. I'm sorry. Why, why, why are you laughing? Is that funny? <laughs> huh? You're cheering. Is that what you're doing? You're cheering. Well, it was either put my glasses on or have Simi hold my Bible for me so I could read it. We are in Romans chapter 16, and we're going to be covering verses 1 through 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles <clears throat> give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patribus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Let's pray. Father, we join together this morning and rejoice that we have the opportunity to do so. We realize that in our day and age, if, if not our culture, if not yet our culture, it's not illegal to gather this way. We have the freedom to do this. We get to join together and, and we get to be inside a building that has air conditioner and that has air filters to keep some of the smoke out. And, and we don't have to be concerned about uh, the police or military or, or somebody rushing in the back door. We have freedom and we rejoice in those freedoms. Father, we worship You this morning. We give You honor. And we praise You that You have saved such a diverse crowd of people as those gathered in this room right now and as those gathered in this couple of paragraphs in Romans 16. Thank You for Your saving work. I pray, Father, that this morning You would be lifted up and You would help us to see and value and rejoice in the diversity of the people whom You have saved and that we would see our need for fellowship with one another like is spoken of here. We commit to You these next few minutes and ask that You would be at work in us by Your Spirit, applying Your Word in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, a couple of things before we actually get started. This this, uh, sermon could be uh, subtitled either uh, the one where the pastor has to read all the strange names or I thought about also calling this one when I woke up this morning the dangers of secondhand smoke, which is, which is uh, something that we see going on out there. Um, and actually, I know there are quite a few people who are at home because of the smoke. They didn't want to go out into it. They didn't want to uh, go into that, and I, I understand that. And so, that's why I have extra water up here this morning, and that's why my eyes, I think, are so bad. It can't be my age, right? It's the smoke, I tell you. So, I brought my glasses to, to, to overcome the smoke. <clears throat> and, um, but this passage is a very interesting passage, and, um, and I think it gives us a peek into what's going on in the church in Rome. If you, if you really want to get to know a family, if you really want to know what they're like, you don't just see them at church, right? You need to see them in their home. You need to see them in their own environment. You need to see them going about their daily mundane household tasks. How do they talk to each other? How do they discipline their children? Do they discipline their children? How do they relate to each other when no one else is looking? That's when you really get to know a family and see what they're like. And, and I, when I read these couple of paragraphs, I think that's what we're seeing a peek at in Romans 16. We're seeing a peek into the household, meaning the Christians and the church in Rome and what they were like. This is household business that Paul is taking care of. Send greetings over here, send greetings over here, tell this guy thank you, treat this person this way, right? It's household stuff, but it's that household, mundane, day-to-day stuff that reveals what a family is really like. And so I, I, my goal this morning is for us to be able to get a peek at what the family in Rome was like, what the church was like. Paul names 27 people in today's passage, 27 People. That's far more than anywhere else in the Bible. Of course, when you read the the, um, the genealogies, you'll get lists much longer than that. But this isn't a genealogy. This is greet so and so, and greet so and so, and greet so and so. He uh, he often greets people in his letters, and in Colossians, he he greets more than average. But in Romans, we have twenty seven, and uh, so a lot of people, you know, a lot of pastors. As I as I have, you know, kind of looked around at what different pastors have done with this section, many of them skip it, or they just read it and then make a comment and then move on to the meatier stuff. But as I was looking through these verses today, I was remembering that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, and that means these verses are profitable for the same thing. These verses have been breathed out by God, and so I think there's meat here enough to keep us fed. We don't have to move on to something bigger. And one thing I want us to keep in mind to listen for this morning is what kind of people has God saved in Rome? What kinds of people did Jesus die for? And so, in looking at our passage today, we're going to look, first of all, at some demographics of the church, I'm not going to work through verse by verse. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's better in this context to look at it more thematically, and so I'm going to try and look at some particular themes. First of all, the demographic, demographics of the church. Uh, first of all, slave and free. As we read through here, we see that some of these are slaves, some of these are free. How do we know that? Well, I can give an example from our time when we lived in Russia. Uh, in Russian they have a, a limited number of names that you can use to name your pets, particularly dogs, right? You know, Fido, that whole thing, right? So there, there's, a, there's a limited number of names that, that are acceptable to give to your dogs. So the Beheimers move to Russia, and we get a dog, and what do we name our dog? Lemony Snicket, okay? Yes, that's exactly what the Russians thought. They looked at us as funny, and they're, they're, they're scrolling through their lexicon of dog names, and Lemony Snicket is nowhere on there, right? That's because in, in Russian, they have a set number of names that are used specifically for dogs, and many of them are American, so I won't tell you what they are, because it might be offensive to you <laughs> because you might have that name. But it was, it was similar. it was similar in, in the Roman period that slaves tended to have a certain set of names. They're, they're uh, uh, scholars looking back, historians and, and sociologists and whatnot, looking back at. At uh, this period of time, they recognized that slaves tended to have certain names. There's a certain ring to a name that tells you that comes from slavery. Either that person is a slave or was a slave or was born in slavery. And so uh, by doing that sort of examination, you can see uh, looking through this, this list, and I'm not going to bore you with, with who were the slaves and who wasn't. That's not really the point. But uh, we, can, we can see that um, looking through this list, the scholars have identified that about two-thirds of these people have slavery in their background somewhere. Either they are slaves or they they were slaves, but then they've been set free but have retained their names. And so about two-thirds of them, which is interesting because that pretty well reflects the ratio in Rome in general, that overall in Rome, about 40% of the population was freeborn, about 30% were slaves currently, and about 30% had been slaves but had been set free. And so you see a representation kind of of the culture in the church that he mentions here. And so you've got uh, those who are slaves, those who are free. And also, just as a side note, those same scholars that have commented on such things about their names have pointed out that about half of these people on this list appear to be immigrants to Rome. They're not native-born. They're from somewhere else. You can tell by the type of name, for example, uh, the name Persis means something like the one from Persia or the Persian one, right? So, so she's from uh, back east, right? So you've got this mixture uh, in these names of slave and free, and likewise, secondly, you've got a mixture of those who were Jew and Gentile. Rome, the church at Rome was predominantly a Gentile church, but they had a significant minority, a very influential minority of Jews in their midst. Uh, in our list here, there are three who are definitely Jews and many, uh, several others who were likely Jews. When Paul says, my kinsman, he's most likely referring to the fact that this person was Jewish as well. So you've got Jews and Gentiles together, right? Well, and we, we've talked about this. This is nothing new as we've looked at the book of Romans. We've looked at the theological arguments and, and identities of Jew and Gentile and how the, the, on the theological level it was important for Paul to explain to them what it means to be a Jew and what it means to be a Gentile and what it means to be in Christ. And so he's made theological arguments about the fact that the one who is the true Jew is the one who shares the faith of Abraham, right? And so these, these base distinctions that you've lived with for so long now in Christ are no longer definitive of who you are. Being in Christ defines who you are. So you have that on a theological level. He's made that argument. But likewise, on a more relational level and on an ethical and moral level, uh, how do you treat meat sacrificed to idols? We've spent time talking about that. Well, Jews and Gentiles tended to have different views on those things. And Paul is saying this is how you need to live together and work together, Jews and Gentiles in the church in Rome, on how you deal with these issues. And he's saying that Jews in the church were not to think that they had some kind of special in with God simply because of their ethnicity or their historical identity as national Israel. The Jews are sinners too, and they have the same guilt and sin debt before God as the Gentiles do. And on the other hand, the Gentiles were not to look down on the Jews because the gospel was now being received much more broadly and frequently amongst the Gentiles than amongst the Jews. They were to recognize that actually this salvation comes from the Jews. And there should be a level of gratitude there. But then also, God was sovereignly at work to use the Jewish hardness of heart to bring in a large crop of Gentiles. So they should be grateful to God. They should be respectful, and they should be considerate to their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when uh, Paul writes this section by sending greetings to Jews and Gentiles, he's, he's declaring that they are on equal footing with Him. They are on equal footing with God, And they should be on equal footing with one another. So we have a collection of Jews and Gentiles also. And then uh, thirdly, male and female. Male and female in this same list. Now, this, you know, the male and female is not always super clear to us being from a different culture and a different language. But when you look at it in the original, when you look at it in context, it's pretty clear which is feminine, which is masculine. And I want to note just a couple of things. Of the 27 names here, 10 are women. 10 of those mentioned are women. Paul sometimes, in, uh, amongst skeptics, gets a reputation as being a misogynist. <clears throat> he hated women. He was down on women. He was uh, anti-woman or something like that. But you would think if that were the case that, that he wouldn't have listed so many uh, in his greetings that we still read 2,000 years later. He lists a number of them. He includes them. It doesn't seem like something a misogynist would do. And we see uh, these women. We're going to look more specifically at a couple of, uh, a couple of them in a moment. But uh, these women throughout this list, they were very involved. They were a crucial part of the ministry. He says several times, workers in the Lord, who has done much work for the Lord. This, this woman has, has, has served these people, and, and he's, he's recognizing um, that they were very involved. They were a crucial part of the ministry. And so, how do we think about just a brief, very, very brief uh, look at the demographics of the church there? What's the application for us? Well, I think this is is where it comes uh, to rest for us. Since God saves such diverse people, there is no place for us to act like God is only able to work or going to work amongst people like me. Nor is there a place for us to act and think like God is only going to work in people different than me. God is at work saving people broadly. He's at work saving all different demographics. And a peek at the demographics in the church in Rome is a preview really of what we're going to see in heaven. Where for example in Romans or excuse me Revelation chapter 5 we see people from every tribe and language and people and nation worshiping together gathered together around the throne of the lamb to worship him. That is how God is saving people, from every tribe and people and language and nation. So secondly, I want to I look a little bit at the women in the church. And uh, a couple of women uh, particularly we'll get to in a moment. But first of all, the female servants of the Lord. Notice how he singles out and he honors several women as those who are workers for the Lord. And in fact, you've not had a time to do the analysis or whatnot, but he singles out and identifies far more women who are workers for the Lord than men who are workers for the Lord, not by ratio, by sheer number. So he only mentions ten women by name, and about half of them he ascribes the the honorific worker for the Lord. And so he's recognizing, he's honoring that these women are real servants of Christ, real servants of of Christ's people. Like, for example, in verses 1 and 2, we see Phoebe. She's a servant. She's a deacon of the church. She's a benefactor, right? So she's a, a, an example of one who is a particular worker who has worked hard for the Lord. In verse 3, you have Prisca, who in, in other places in the New Testament is called Priscilla, same, same woman. You have Prisca, and along with her husband, Aquila, they are fellow workers in Christ. They're involved in the ministry. They're they're, they're, they're sacrificially working and giving towards the ministry in different ways. The same way in verse 6 with Mary, has worked hard for you, Paul says. And then verse 12, Tryphena and Tryphosa, who were sisters most likely. It was common in those days to give your kids uh, names that all sounded alike, and, uh, and so it would have the same root and they would add different endings. So Trifena and Tryphosa were most likely uh, sisters, They were workers in the Lord. And then you have Persis also, who had worked hard in the Lord. Right, so again and again, when he's mentioning these women, he's not just saying, uh, what was the women's Bible study? Oh, yeah, so-and-so and so-and-so. And so. Yeah, greet um, them too. No, he's identifying these women, and he's saying these are women of, of significance. Their ministry has been significant. They are workers for the Lord. They are female servants of the Lord. And we come to Phoebe. We want to look at for just a moment at Phoebe, a benefactor to many, a benefactor to many. First couple of verses there, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord, in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Centrea. That's another place like Illyricum that doesn't immediately pop up into her mind where is that. Centrea is just one of the ports of Corinth. Okay, So she lived near Corinth. Paul was most likely writing Romans from Corinth and he's saying she has been a minister, she has been a, a servant, she has worked hard, she's been a benefactor there in Centrea, which is one of the ports of Corinth so local to where Paul was. And she's most likely, get this, She's most likely carrying with her the original, the original Romans that she's got tucked away in her purse. She's got tucked away in her bag somewhere. The autograph, the original one written to be sent to the church at Rome, she most likely had it in her possession and was the courier taking it from Corinth to the Roman church. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I mean, here we've spent you know, two and a half years talking about the book of Romans. There have been uh, pastors who've spent 12, 13 years talking about the book of Romans. There, there, there have been, you know, I have a collection of eight or ten commentaries on Romans, and that's a tiny, tiny fraction of what has been written on this book. This is a foundational book for the entire church, and she had it in her bag. Can you imagine the, 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 the payload? What an amazing thing that she brought So here she is. She's the one uh, bringing the book of Romans, most likely. Uh, She's noteworthy in Corinth uh, where Paul is writing. He he calls her a deacon, a servant of the church in Centrea, and that word deacon and servant, it's the same word. And it's hard to say this early in the development of the church whether it was an official office, and if it was an official office, the the duties of that office were not yet uh, clear uh, that we can see in reading the New Testament or even Uh, historical writings from the New Testament period, but nevertheless, she's a servant of the church in some significant uh, capacity. Sorry, She's been a benefactor. She's uh, been of significant help to Paul and to many others, and so we don't know much more about her, but it seems like, you know, traveling in those days, particularly if you were a traveling Christian going from one place to another, whether you were traveling for business or, or for ministry or something like that, you would need a place to stay when you got to town, and the most, the most uh, beneficial place to stay, the safest place to stay, and where you ought to stay would be with other Christians, right? Well, it seems like she may have had some sort of a role in helping people traveling through Corinth or through Centrea to uh, do such a thing, but it's hard to say what exactly her ministry was like. But here she was a significant uh, blessing in that church community. And so she's singled out for a couple of verses to identify her as this kind of servant of the church. Well, that brings us next to Junia, verse 7. Verse 7 is, is, uh, seems innocuous enough. Greet Andronicus and Junia, My kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Innocuous enough, but if you're reading a version other than the ESV, you might have noticed some difference in the wording there, and that's for good reason. It's because it's a little bit difficult to understand what is going on here. It seems like, according to some versions, it seems like um, this, this woman may be a female apostle, and I'll explain uh, what I mean by this. In, in recent decades, maybe in, in the last century or, or perhaps a little bit more, the question of women in ministry and women's involvement in ministries and what, what, uh, what roles are acceptable and, and preferable and all those kinds of things has been a come, become a real topic of discussion in the church. There's been a lot of scholarly work on it. There's been a, a lot of uh, work on it on, uh, on local levels with churches. They've been looking at this. And this verse right here comes up a lot and gets looked at because here you have Junia, and it sounds like Junia may be a female apostle. So I want to work through it just a little bit and explain what I mean by this. Okay? First of all, Andronicus and Junia were Jewish because they're called kinsmen, so we know they're Jewish. Um, they had been imprisoned at some point possibly even with Paul. Um, Maybe it's, it's possible that they were prisoners like Paul had been a prisoner, and so he could call them fellow prisoners. But most likely they had been imprisoned, possibly with Paul, and been imprisoned for the ministry, for their service to Christ. And they've been in Christ longer than Paul. They've been Christians longer than Paul has been a Christian. Possibly even all the way back to Pentecost. So, a res- very respected couple of people here, right? So, Andronicus and Junia. Well, there's a question also, is Junia a male or a female name? In English, it's a little bit hard to tell. Junia might make you think that it's, uh, that it's probably a female name, but uh, it's a word, you know, a name that's a little bit like, you know, s- some names that can be used for men and for women, like Kelly. This is my friend Kelly. Okay, I need more help, right? Unless I can see this friend or unless you tell me this this is my girlfriend Kelly or this is my sister Kelly or this is my brother Kelly or this is my boyfriend Kelly, right? It's one of those names that can can kind of be used either way and the way it's used in the Greek, the case that it's in and the usage, it's not super clear. Actually, it, it would be spelled exactly the same in the Greek if it was a masculine or a feminine, with the exception of an accent. And you don't care about the accent, and I don't really care about the accent all that much, but the point is the accents weren't inspired. The accents were added later, right? So it was written down in letters, and when you look at it, you can think, well, is that a masculine or feminine? I don't know. So you you look about the uh, Roman Empire, well, it was just not a common name, just not a common name at all. But then when you look in church history, church history tended to see Junia as a woman, so, okay, I'm, I'm fine with that. Okay, I, I'm, I'm going to defer to people who's, you know, for whom Greek has been their native language and, and they're closer to the time, etc., right? It seems like it's a female name and probably married to Andronicus. That would make sense. You have a couple, Andronicus and Junia, all right? They're Jewish. They've been in, in Christ longer than Paul has, etc., probably husband and wife, but here's, here's the rub, okay? Not just, is this a masculine or, or a feminine word? Here's the rub. The, the wording there in the original can be translated a couple of different ways, and it's been understood a couple of different ways. For example, if you're reading the ESV, which I did, or like a net Bible, it will say, they are well known or of note to the apostles. And so that gives the idea that there's a group of apostles And this group of apostles knew Andronicus and Junia who were not part of the apostles. So the apostles knew them, right? So they were well-known to the apostles. So there's a separation between them and the apostles. But the King James, the New American Standard, the NIV, the RSV, uh, also translated, which it can be legitimately translated, they are well-known among the apostles, which gives the idea that there is a group of apostles… And within this group, you have Andronicus and Junia, and they are are within that group and they are well known in that group. So, how are we to understand this? Well, looking at the language doesn't solve the problem. Uh, Looking at whether it's masculine or feminine doesn't really solve the problem, and I'm not going to solve the problem for you today either. Okay? I'm not really sure. Scholars differ, differ on that, how it should be translated. Is it, are the apostles the group who know? the couple, or are the couple within the group of the apostles, and they are well known among that, that group. I, I don't feel qualified to make such a, such a decision uh, on that, but there's another question. What does apostle mean? And you're thinking, well, this got to be a trick question, right, because I know what an apostle is, right? Apostle, you know, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, right? Well, of course, apostle can mean one of the twelve, right clearly it can mean that for example Matthew chapter 10 uh, these are the names of the 12 apostles okay so you have the 12 there are 12 apostles right it comes from uh, it's related to the word the idea of being sent out but it's particularly as emissaries sent out with a particular message sent out as representatives of uh, in this case Jesus right but the word also seems like it can be used to designate a group that is somehow distinguished from the 12 so one particular usage of apostle means the 12 but it can also be used it seems in a way that distinguishes apostles here in distinction from the 12 uh, for example in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 5 and 7 Paul writing there says Jesus appeared to Cephas then to the 12 okay then he appeared to James then to all the apostles. So in in some way, we can distinguish between the twelve and apostles. And I I don't want to drive that point too far into there, but what I I want to say is this word can be used a little bit differently, right? That in some way, it seems like 1 Corinthians 15, he's making some kind of a distinction between the twelve and all the apostles, okay? As if the waters weren't muddy enough. Apostle can also mean simply messenger. I checked uh, all the versions I have access to. Um, I didn't do an extensive online search, but uh, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 23, as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches. I didn't find a translation that translates it anything differently than messengers, right? That was 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 23. Likewise, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 25, Paul calls Epaphroditus, quote, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. That's the word apostle. In both of those cases, the word messenger is the word apostle. Okay, so there it clearly means, and all of the translators agree, it means messenger, right? So apostle has a range of meanings as most words have a range of meaning, right? So When it says that Andronicus and Junia were well-known among the apostles, whether that was as a number of the apostles or known by the apostles, what does apostle mean? What does apostle mean? Well, it's not super clear. But to insist upon calling her an apostle with some sort of apostolic authority or in some sort of authoritative office alongside the twelve is, is, is too much, is too much. Okay, I, th- I think that is a, a, a far stretch. And when you compare that with the fact that she and her husband were particularly noteworthy either to the apostles or among the apostles, especially noteworthy, they're famous people, where else do you see her name? Nowhere, right? I mean, we see Peter's name everywhere. We see Paul's name everywhere. The apostles are named. Now, some of the apostles fall uh, kind of out of the story as you go through the book of Acts, and they didn't write anything, et cetera, right? But but you have her mentioned, and Andronica mentioned, nowhere else in Scripture. So I think probably, this is just my opinion, and I've kind of laid everything out there for you. It's hard to say for certain, but I think that Junia was a Jewish woman. She had been involved closely in gospel ministry, along with her husband, and probably even with Paul. She may have served as an emissary for Paul, like a a messenger for Paul, like Phoebe is in our passage here, or she may have been a gospel messenger of some some other sort, along with her husband. But whatever the case, this one verse, remember I said why this verse is such a big deal? You know, you've already wondered why I've spent five minutes on talking about it. Well, that's because in the history of interpretation in the last hundred years, there's been big questions about women's roles in church, in church ministry, and what's legitimate and what's not, etc., and so they will point to this and say, see, Junia was an apostle. Here's a female apostle, so who are you to say and make some conclusion from it, right? My point in, in talking about all of this is to point out that she's very honored. She's well-known and respected. She's a minister. She's someone Paul respects, she along with her husband. But it doesn't add anything to the conversation. It doesn't tell us what she did doesn't tell us exactly what her role was. It doesn't talk about any sort of authority or anything like that. It's an example, along with the rest of this passage, of Paul giving honor where honor is due to a woman who, along with her husband, had been a faithful servant of Christ longer than Paul had, been involved in the ministry to such a degree that they went to prison for it. He was honoring them. He was giving them a great deal of respect, and the fact that we're reading about it 2,000 years later. Discussing this couple is significant, that they made it into, the, way, into the, the pages of Holy Scripture. And so, what's our application? Brothers, we need to be grateful for the ministry God has given women in the church, and we need to be prepared and ready to honor them. sisters, be grateful for the varied ministry opportunities that God has given you in the church and be content in those ministries. I think back to the women who went with us to Africa, to India. They ministered in spheres, in relationships, in corners of the culture that the men could never have. We who were on those trips as men, we were amazed at the rapport that the women had with the women. We were amazed with what the, the, the women who went with us, the, 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 the short-term missionaries who were there with us, how they were able to learn details about their families, about how their marriages were going, what was really going on behind the scenes, what life was like there in ways that we could not have done. I could have asked those same women those same questions. And, and I would have gotten a completely different answer. I would have learned completely different things from what our sisters in Christ learned, the ways they were able to minister. Sisters, rejoice in the ministry that God has given you. It is unique, and it is valuable, and it is honorable. And be content in that ministry, rejoicing that it is Christ who has given you that opportunity. All of this brings me to the third point. Unity in the church. Of all the directions I could have gone with uh, looking at these different names and all the different directions that different people have gone in looking at these, um, I think unity in the church is is a a theme that stood out to me from beginning to end of this. First of all, look at the greetings to one another. The greetings to one another. I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but Paul is saying, greet this person and greet this person and greet this person, and greet this church in their house. Greet this person's family. All the believers over here, send greetings. Paul was sending greetings for strategic purposes and for personal purposes. Some of the strategic purposes were that he was desiring to travel to Rome and travel through Rome, and he wanted to establish rapport and relationship with the church in Rome. And so he's saying, "Uh, I know this person. Say hi to that person for me. Oh, And and I know this person also. Say hi to that person. I've heard about so-and-so. He's establishing some commonalities so that he's got relationship with them when he shows up, right? That's a desirable thing to do. So he has his own strategic purposes for that. He wanted them to be prepared to welcome him and to send him on his way. I've noted that this is a fundraising letter. He's preparing them that they're going to have the opportunity to be involved financially in his ministry as he continues on. But he isn't simply looking for the recipients of the letter to pass on greetings from him, hey, tell so-and-so I said hi. Tell this other person I said hi. That's not what he's saying. He's addressing them and saying, you, go greet that person. Implicit in there is that greeting is for me. I encourage you to do so. But what's really going on there is Christians in Rome are being sent to greet other Christians in Rome. You've got individuals who... May or may not, we don't, we don't know anything about the individual backgrounds of how they related to one another, etc., but we know by reading Paul's letter here that there was some degrees of tension within, within the church there in Rome. And by looking at this passage, there are at least about five different house churches mentioned. It's not as if the whole church at Rome met in one room like we are now. You've got references there to greet, you know, this guy and the church in his house. Greet these five people and the church with them. Greet these other five people and the church with them. He's talking about greeting different churches. So the church in Rome wasn't one monolithic thing. It wasn't just in one place at one point. And he wanted them, Paul who knew them individually, not every Christian but a number of these, and he knew by reputation many others. He wanted them to greet one another and get to know one another. In, in my life and in my ministry, I've, I've had the opportunity to travel quite a bit. I've lived in numerous different places with a, a wide variety of people whom I dearly love. And one of, the, one of the things I wish and I look forward to about heaven is for those dear people from different places and different relationships. I wish they could get together and know one another, because they would love one another. And I would love to be there for that. I would love to be a part of that fellowship as my friends, fellow missionaries from Russia, and dear friends from Chicago, and friends from here in Fallon, and friends I've done missions with overseas, that, that, that we could all be together and fellowship with one another. Of course, that, that won't happen fully until we get to glory, but I think, I think there's an element of that in Paul's writing here. He wants them to know each other. You need to meet this guy. He's great. You need to meet this family. They are wonderful. You'll be blessed by them. And so he's sending them to greet one another. He's sending them in such a fashion as to build some sort of a a greater unity amongst these disparate churches in Rome. He wants them to get together, and he knows that doing so, uh, they will be strengthened in their faith as their relationships with one another are strengthened. And he says... Greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 16. I've been waiting for this verse to come up. <laughs> Greet one another with a holy kiss, right? This is something that uh, is mentioned several times in uh, the New Testament. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm getting all choked up talking about the holy kiss. <laughs> Just you wait, okay? Just you wait till you hear it. So. Uh, Paul talks about it at the end of 1 Corinthians, the end of 2 Corinthians, the end of 1 Thessalonians. Peter does the same thing at the end of 1 Peter. It was a normal uh, thing for them to say, greet one another with a holy kiss or the, with the kiss of love. right? And so he's passing on this kind of instruction. Well, I mean, I'm from Fallon, okay, <laughs> and, uh, but I've traveled a lot. And one of the places I've traveled to was the country of Armenia. And in Armenia, they are a much more affectionate people. There are places in the Middle East where men hold, hold hands with men. That's a normal thing. They love each other. It's a, it's a, normal, it's a normal thing to do. We wouldn't do that here, uh, but they do that, right? Well, in Armenia, some may have done that. I, I wasn't subjected to that, but they do greet one another with a kiss, and it's the you know, kiss on the cheek thing, right? And I remember it very clearly because here my baby face is rubbing up against these, these Armenian guys with the thickest beards ever, right? They shave daily, but they've got, you know, as soon as they wipe off the, you know, the water, they've got five o'clock shadow, right? And so you're kissing these guys like Velcro, you know. But um, (laughs) some of you wives know what I'm talking about. But uh, they, uh, that's the way they greet one another. And being a good missionary, I sought to fit in, right? And they would, uh, they're just a touchy, much more affectionate, physically affectionate culture. Well, I loved it didn't bother me at all. I'm, I'm not really a huggy person or anything like that, but in that culture, it, it had uh, a special significance, and I loved it. I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. And, um, and that's kind of what is going on here. It's, it's a part of the culture that, uh, that they would greet one another with a kiss. Now, um, I don't need to go into the history of it or anything like that, but the, there's nothing untoward about this kiss. There's nothing, um, you know, romantic or erotic or anything like that about this kiss. It's, it's a kiss on the cheek, It's most likely men kissing men and women kissing women, and it's most likely connected with uh, maybe the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which is a particular… it's called communion. We together corporately are communing with God, right? So, it's a time when there would be a special element of affection, of familial affection. So, that's the kind of relationship that Paul wanted them to have with one another, where they would have that kind of relationship, that kind of affection for one another. Greet one another with the holy kiss. Don't, don't just send, you know, some cold letter or don't just wave high from across the room or don't just, you know, rub shoulders. Greet one another with a holy kiss. He, he wants to foster within the church in Rome a degree of intimacy and fellowship that, uh, that apparently was missing. So, what's the application? So, he's... Shall we institute the holy kiss? There's some nervous laughter. <laughs> what is Brennan going to say next? <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think, it's, I think that is uh, one of the things in the New Testament that is culturally defined. If we were to go around kissing one another, first of all, you'd have people from the outside with a lot of questions, but it'd be weird for us too, right? It's not a normal cultural thing. It's not a, uh, not a it, doesn't, it doesn't carry straight across. So no, I don't think we need to greet one another with a holy kiss. Please don't try to kiss me, okay? <laughs> Please. <laughs> it was great in Armenia, okay? <laughs> Part of their culture. The principle is that we greet one another with a godly and a familial affection. We have that kind of relationship. Not, not cold distance. But affection. And this whole passage is a picture of churches in harmony. Churches in harmony. There are a number of churches represented in this passage. Many of them uh, home churches, maybe even all of them home churches. It's kind of hard to say. If there was somebody wealthy enough to rent a hall or something like that, well, that person would probably also be wealthy enough to have a room in their house that would be big enough. For the church to meet. It was a normal thing for the church of the, the first century to be a house church. Now, that's different maybe than our notion of a house church because house churches in our culture tend to exist as a group of people who are dissatisfied with the established church. There's, there's some degree of suspicion of organized religion or or a church that would spend enough money, you know, to have a building or something like that. There's a degree of suspicion or lack of comfort with the way church is normally done. We're going to have a house church instead. So that's that's not what's going on here, right? A house church still needs to have qualified eldership and leadership in order to be a church. They need to have a a, a, a teaching body, whether it's an individual who's a pastor or whether it's a group of elders who are the teachers and the, the shepherds of that community, they need to have qualified biblical leadership. So, when we talk about house churches here, these aren't a bunch of people who, uh, who have uh, so, sort of suspicion about organized religion or something like that. It was of necessity. It was of necessity. They didn't have buildings like this to go meet in, These were people, many of them, as we looked, two-thirds of them from some kind of a slave background, they probably didn't have a lot of money, certainly not to build a building, perhaps not even to rent some kind of a place like the Hall of Tyrannus or something like that, but but, uh, could meet in someone's home if they had someone in their midst with those kind of facilities. So, Paul's instruction… Mean, uh, is intended here to, to convey. He's, he's exhorting the people, these various churches in, that are scattered in different places with different leadership. He wants those different people, those different churches to greet one another with a holy kiss. He wants those people to be unified. That doesn't mean they have to join together and rent out the Colosseum on a, Saturday, or a Sunday morning. But they are to be in fellowship with one another. They're to have warm, spiritual, familial fellowship with one another. And so I think the application for us here is that that Christians, we need to be in harmony and have genuine affection for one another. It was very easy probably for these churches who already had disagreements uh, based upon Jew and Gentile background, and all of those sorts of issues they already had those kinds of disagreements and it was easy just to you know what the gentiles are just going to have a church over here and we're going to do the gentile thing and we're going to do it our way we don't have to worry about uh, the jews and their scruples and their history and all that kind of stuff and it is easier for the jews to meet over here and those gentiles with their you know wild and wooly ways their their looseness or whatever their different background or they look down at us or what let's just meet separately and and it'll be we'll call it a truce right Paul wants to overcome that. He wants to overcome that. He wants them to reach out to one another and realize that your base identity is not rooted in you being a Gentile or you being a Jew or you being wealthy or a a free freeborn person or being a slave or being a man or being a woman. Your identity is as Paul will teach elsewhere, is in Christ. And so as Christians, that is the way we are to relate to one another. That's the affection we are to have with one another. In our Sunday school class, we've been talking about justification and sanctification. We've been talking about how we need to come to recognize at a a saving point in life my need for Christ. my my own lostness and my need for him because of my sin, and then see that his provision is sufficient for me to make me at peace with God, that I would have forgiveness of sins, that I would have his righteousness credited to me. That's something that I need to come to in a saving way, but even as Christians, I need to we need to remember and look back on the fact that we're undeserving and sinful. And the reason we get to have peace with God is because of what Christ has done. And guess what? Christ has done it, and it is accomplished, and it is finished, and it is final. And that righteousness that is ours by faith in Christ is unassailable. He won't fail. He already accomplished it. And by faith in Him, it's credited to me. So as, as I come day after day to that realization and, and remember the righteousness of Christ for me, what He has accomplished, I no longer have to achieve my own righteousness to think I have peace with God. I can look to His instead. And, and as we think in those terms about our justification, well, I was undeserving. All the people on this list were undeserving. Those people at that Gentile church over there were undeserving. Those people at that Jewish church meeting over there in so-and-so's house were undeserving equally undeserving before God and yet equally justified by faith in Christ. That I have peace with God, I have reconciliation with God because of what Christ has done. I merely look to Him in faith and it's accomplished for me. And that reconciliation between me and God comes with it Reconciliation with my brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been reconciled to one another because we were all in that same starting place of utter need. And by faith in Christ, we have His righteousness established on our behalf. We have forgiveness of our sins. We have peace with Him and adoption into His family. And so do you. And so do those Christians over at that church and those Christians over at that church. So as I look at our passage and as I think about all of these names, there is a lot here. There's a lot here that is convicting to me because I want to celebrate and I want to remind you to celebrate and to look to what Christ has done on the cross, what has been accomplished and finished. I want to encourage you and exhort you to look at the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life right now. We want to do those things day in and day out. I want to remind me and remind you of those things. And this passage takes it one step further and reminds us that those things are true not just of us as individuals, but of us as the redeemed people of God. And that being the case, how ought we to relate to one another? How ought we to love one another? How ought we to be patient with one another, be forgiving with one another, have that familial affection that he describes here as holy kiss? We who are in Christ need to call to mind that we were not a part of Jesus' inner circle. We were on the outside, actually at enmity, With him in our sin, but then we were saved and we were brought in into that inner circle of relationship with Christ, of union and peace with God. How then, if I have peace with God and that union with him, can I treat another person who has the same thing as if they were outside? He wants us to greet one another. He wants us to have that sort of affection with one another. The exhortation here is to remember that we have been reconciled to God in Christ, and in Christ we have also been reconciled to one another. So let us be first in line to show grace and acceptance to the rest of God's children, because we are those who have received grace and acceptance with God through our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this list of names of people that Paul wanted to be greeted. Thank You that this goes beyond just uh, a list of names written 2,000 years ago. This is Your Word, breathed out by You and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Father, I pray that as we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that we would not be cliquish, that we would not be sectarian, that we would be willing to uh, express this holy kiss kind of familial love and affection with other Christians, that we would actually seek it out. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Jesus, whose work it is we rely upon, depend upon, that accomplished our justification. Thank You for Your Spirit who lives within us, who continues to convict us when we step wrong, who continues to empower us to step out in, in faith and, and trusting You, and who continues to direct our focus to Christ. Pray that we would share that with other Christians. We are grateful for your word and we are grateful for the fellowship we have with you, the reconciliation we have with you and for what this means for our reconciliation with other Christians. Help us, we pray. Help us to overcome our own uh, areas where we are hesitant to do that. Help us to show love and greet one another with a holy kiss pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to pray with somebody, there'll be a family up here to pray with you. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.